overall, the impact of, of this decree really would set a precedent that we do not want to be set, and that's this stigmatism against GMO crops. GMO technology is extremely, extremely important to agriculture in, in the U.S. and the rest of the world, too. Hello and welcome to the Cobcast, inside the grind with the National Corn Growers Association. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big-picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we're making sure the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. So make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast app and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at ncga.com. A major disruption to the market for U.S. corn is set to take effect in one year, as a decree by Mexico's president would ban the import of GMO corn effective January 31, 2024. Historically, Mexico has been the number one market for U.S. corn, and so it should surprise no one that the NCGA has been active in pushing back, with strong support from the Biden administration in Washington. The NCGA is urging the administration to hold the line and file a dispute settlement under the USMCA to hold Mexico accountable to their obligations under that trade agreement. And so, in order to build awareness of the issue in Congress, on January 31st, we held a well-attended briefing for congressional staffers with an all-star panel of experts. Joining us were Congressman Adrian Smith from Nebraska, the chair of the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Trade, Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Jason Hoffmeister, NCGA President Tom Hag was there to offer leadership's perspective, and Nebraska grower Andy Jobman gave us a view from the farm field. The discussion was moderated by NCGA Vice President of Communications Neil Kasky. Let's go ahead and get started, Tom. From a, a grower point of view, help us understand what Mexico means to U.S. farmers. What it means for us is that they're neighbors, therefore importing our corn to theirs is a less distance than we have to worry about going to China or whatever, but uh, they're also our largest importer of our yellow corn and white corn, which is $10.3 billion a year. And if we would happen to uh, lose some of that over uh, this issue, would be huge for the American farmer because 90% of the corn that we grow is GMO corn. That would be the first major thing there, right there, Neil, that would be a, a big impact to uh, the U.S. corn farmer. And uh, at NCGA, we represent 26 affiliated states and a little bit less than uh, 40,000 members, but we have 300,000 corn farmers that pay checkoff dues to uh, their states. So uh, it would be a big impact. Andy, anything you want to add to that from your perspective? Yeah. So on our particular farm, we raise a lot of food grade white and yellow corn, actually all of its food grade white and yellow. And most of it stays domestic for a major domestic corn chip processor. But we do have extra white corn that we do sell to a, a vendor that ships that corn to Mexico and to Central America. And this last year, about 50% of that extra corn that I grew on my farm went to Mexico. So when we hear rumors and threats of, of that market shutting down, it uh, definitely hits really home for me um, and a lot of producers in Nebraska. Nebraska is the number one white corn producing state in the nation. So that's a little bit unique for Nebraska. But overall, the impact of, of this decree really would set a precedent that we do not want to be set. And that's this stigmatism against GMO crops. When we've been producing GMO crops on our farms for over 20 years, and the science is solid behind it in terms of the safety 
in terms of what we can do for conservation and stewardship. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that later. You think about the, the American corn farmers role in protecting our environment, leaving a, a very small environmental impact and very small carbon footprint. We can't do that without GMO crops. And I think GMO technology is extremely, extremely important to agriculture in, in the U.S. and the rest of the world, too. So shifting gears just a bit, I want to talk a little bit about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. So Congressman Smith, obviously you were on the committee that helped with that trade agreement. And so tell us what that agreement did for agriculture in general and in corn, I guess, in particular, that kind of helped put us in a better spot. Right. It strengthened our position. And, and certainly when you look at the broader context of what NAFTA had done for agriculture, more specifically corn, though, you know, agriculture had done so well under NAFTA that when there was a renegotiation, it, it did make a lot of agriculture a little bit nervous, but it showed that we can get this done. And, and it, so it updated NAFTA, added biotechnology, for example. <laughs> Imagine that uh, given uh, the uh, events of the day or of uh, these few months uh, of how Mexico is treating us. And so, yes, there is a dispute settlement that that was updated as well. I hope that uh, we won't need a dispute settlement ultimately, but I'm just hoping that this tension between Mexico and the U.S., um, specifically on, on white corn, can be resolved. As Andy mentioned, we do not want dangerous precedents to be set that give other countries other ideas uh, when it's politically motivated. It's not scientifically based. It's politically motivated and it's very damaging, I think, ultimately to trade generically. And we don't need more challenges uh, with trade, especially when we face, I think, an unlevel playing field around the world. I think it's just so helpful. And I think getting USMCA done was a result of really leaning in on trade issues to get that done. The world was watching. A lot of folks said it could never be done. And yet USMCA was done. It was done for the right reasons. I think it was the most bipartisan trade agreement in modern history. There were more Democrats who voted for it than Republicans. Of course, Democrats had majority at the time, but that's not always the case. And so I, I just think we should use this as leverage now moving forward, but obviously to make sure we enforce what we have. Deputy Undersecretary Hefmeister, this question is for you. That So 10 months, I guess, after that agreement was ratified, then we got a curveball out of Mexico with this decree. Can you help us kind of understand what happened and, and what they're trying to do with this ban on GM corn? Yep, for sure. So in January of 2021, Mexico instituted a decree related to corn in particular, but more broadly about biotechnology. And the objective of this decree was to set up a phase out of the use of biotech in food products and particularly for corn. And this phase out would be implemented by January of 2024, so a little over a year from now. And in the interim, Mexico was, their government was charging the country to find an alternative to the use particularly of herbicide resistant traits, but also to biotech products in general. And so while trade has continued in the interim, so Mexico continues to be a big market for us, we've had problems that they have not been approving new traits, new seeds that are being developed by companies that have new positive traits that our farmers want to have access to. They're not being legalized for sale in Mexico. And the Mexican government under this decree is preparing to eventually ban the import of any biotech corn products. So this is a big problem for us for, for several reasons. One, 
Mexico is an important commercial market for us, not just for corn, but for a lot of products. And we want to make sure that that commerce is not unfairly burdened. So we have a commercial interest in making sure that the market stays open, as was promised to us under NAFTA and then Uzmeca. Second, there's a particular need we have to really show that we're serious about trade. There's a lot of concern in the public in the U.S. that trade agreements are unfair. They're not delivering for America, that other countries are taking advantage of us. And this is really creating a lot of resistance to trade, which is a problem for us in agriculture since trade is so critical to our livelihood. So we want to make sure that we make the point that we are enforcing trade agreements, that these agreements that are benefiting our farmers, we're going to keep them in place and be respected. Third, there's a real technology issue here. We're really banking on these genetic modifications, old school and new school, to help improve farm income. These can help increase yields and reduce costs for our farmers. This can help increase the food availability globally. We think that's critical for global food security. And third, we really think these technologies are going to be pivotal to addressing the climate challenge. And so if these technologies are stifled because a key market is making it illegal to market that crop, that's gonna have a lot of negative repercussions. Even if we can keep the market open for old style seeds, that's not gonna address all these promises that we see in the new technology going forward. And finally, we're worried about Mexico. They are big importers of corn. Their livestock industry depends on corn. This helps feed Mexicans. This helps spread the dollar in a Mexican pocket. And, and you know, we're not interested in seeing the cost of living go up in Mexico. So for all those reasons, we've really jumped on this one. So Andy, when I think about the farm gate implications, uh, I think about the impacts on your particular farm. And so could you talk a little bit about why that is and maybe even go beyond just the effects of your farm and just, you know, talk about the broader U.S. corn industry as well, the effects of this proposed ban? Yeah. So I'll walk everyone through kind of a a short timeline of, of what it takes to put in a crop. The crop that we're going to plant here in a few months in April for the 2023 crop a lot of those seed decisions, what hybrid to plant, how much of it, et cetera, et cetera. I've made all those decisions already. A lot of times that's coming in the fall before. And a lot of that is just driven by various market forces and opportunities to purchase at a discount. But a lot of times I'm set by the time January one rolls around with pretty much what I'm going to plant. Walking that back even further, that seed that I'm purchasing from a retailer, a seed company or local cooperative, whatever, that was grown in the season prior to that. And the season prior to that is when the seed companies or our retailers were making decisions on, okay, what kind of seed will our farmer want to plant two seasons from now? And so I hope that kind of illustrates, you know, the complexity of the whole grain channel from developing seeds clear to delivering a final product from the farm gate to an end user. It's three to four years uh, in one turn in one cycle. And so to simply flip a switch on and off between wanting non-GMO or wanting GMO from our, our trade partners is just simply logistically impossible because it takes so long to develop these lines of corn. You know, it takes obviously a whole growing season to raise it, and then it's going to stay in the grain channel, in the supply channel for another at least a year. So this is a very complex industry. And then you throw on top of all of that 
the requirements that you would need to isolate, you know, non-GMO grain from GMO grain from the farm gate clear to the end user, wherever that end user may be. That's a whole nother complicated situation, too. That's why farmers, you see farmers and our associations really, really step back and say, hey, whoa, 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 we can't just do this on a whim. And in a lot of cases, um, it undermines the technology and the uh, advancements that we've seen already in our crop production. You know, when it comes to improving soil health, using less energy, being more environmentally friendly and also raising a much higher quality product. I mean, we can't do that without GMO technology today. I've drawn the similarity of, you know, we're moving backwards if we would do that. It would be like getting rid of electricity and going back to, to candles, basically, if we get rid of GMO technology. Yeah, thanks, Andy. We've been grateful to have wonderful support on, on Capitol Hill and Congressman Smith. That's a big credit to your leadership and all the things that you've done. And could you just uh, help us kind of understand all the activity, all the bipartisan support that we have on Capitol Hill for this particular issue and maybe where that might be going into the future? Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, the support of many of my Democratic colleagues who are sharing the same concerns uh, about uh, what we're talking about. And this issue is not just about us. This is about feeding the world. Andy just talked about taking a, a step back, you know, from electricity back to candles. Imagine uh, if we didn't have uh, GMOs, I mean, we'd need more water, more chemical, you know, so it, it's actually good for the environment uh, to head in a direction utilizing a biotechnology for the future and that we can all benefit from that. And what is lost all too often in terms of, of trade discussions is the impact on consumers. I've heard, you know, from Mexico, actually, some folks concerned about the president's policies there in Mexico, that this is not friendly to uh, consumers in their, in their own country. And I would hope that we would all be sensitive to that because trade policy, whether it's us, whether it's consumers in, in another country, it impacts all of us. It does indeed. And, and I know that we're grateful for the support of the administration as, as well. And uh, this next question is for you, Deputy Undersecretary Halfmeister. I know that this has been going on for some time, but the talks, the negotiations have certainly heated up in recent weeks. And I don't know if, the, if you could just shed some light on uh, where we've been and, and kind of where things are on, on that end. Yeah, well, I'll put in some context. So in 2021, uh, Secretary Vilsack made his first international trip down to Mexico, met with the Mexican government, including the president, and heard back from them some of their priorities. Some of it was heritage related. Mexico says, we are the cradle of corn. We don't want to have these new strange varieties coming in and contaminate the pure Mexican corn. So that's why we don't want it. Some of it is health that there's some belief in some places, Mexico and US, that biotech or some of the herbicides used around it are not healthy. And so that's part of the reason. Part of it is a generalized fear of biotech. So these were some of the things that are in the air down there. Uh, Secretary Vilsack was able to make the case both in 2021 and he went back in 2022 to talk about the safety of these products, the legality under the trade agreement where we're obligated to have access, the economics for American corn farmers as well as Mexican consumers, and the importance to the relationship 
that Mexico really needs to take a hard look at this decree. And so we've been in conversation with Mexico since then. And there's really, I guess, three things to keep an eye on. One is the overarching decree. This is like a regulation, something that comes out of the office of the president down there that sets out this vision of transitioning away from biotech. So that decree on its face is problematic. Second is the approvals of new varieties have been stopped. And so that's stopping the commercialization of corn and some other grains that could be sold down there and stopping our farmers from planting them. And then the third is any related trade regulations that might go in place to try and otherwise restrict or channel these products. So those are the three tools, the three instruments that we're paying attention to. So we've been clear with the Mexicans that this really needs to be solved. It's not the kind of thing that is easily compromised because it's about science, it's about law, it's about economics. And so we're asking them to look at those instruments and to reform them. And we're in conversation in December, the Mexican government sent up four of their ministers, agriculture and trade and foreign ministry and health ministry. They came to Washington. Secretary Vilsack again encouraged them to dig deep and make the reforms. And so those conversations are ongoing. Last week, our new undersecretary for trade, Alexis Taylor, went down there with our new trade ambassador from USTR, Doug McCaleb, and really reaffirmed that some of these halfway measures that Mexico had been floating really don't do it. We really need to see reform. So that's where we're in our talks with Mexico. Oh, very good. So just uh, one final question relates to President Obrador. We know that his term will be ending in, in 2024. And, and I guess this is kind of for anyone that might want to field it. Any speculation on what that might mean on this particular decree? I'm not a uh, political scientist <laughs> internationally, but I just watching this issue with the various countries around the world, and let's face it, Europe, UK more specifically, I should say, the UK, you know, they say they left the EU because of too many regulations, but then they want to keep them on agriculture. This seems to be uh, perhaps a poultry issue uh, uh, more than others, but they keep coming and wanting to visit with me saying uh, they want a trade agreement, but they expect to exclude agriculture. And I'm like, I don't know how you pass a trade agreement in the U.S. in the Congress here without agriculture. The number one trade constituency, I think, here in these parts of America anyway. So it's a political football. And I do worry that not enough is being done to actually get some movement from the president of Mexico, because it seems to center around his personal preferences there. And I haven't even studied all of the political dynamics associated with it. But um, imagine, uh, you know, a long time ago, I don't know if you guys saw that uh, Jimmy Kimmel did Man on the Street interviewing 10 people. You probably watched this. Uh, asking them what GMO stood for. <laughs> and I think one out of the 10 kind of got it right. So that's what we're up against. And we've seen the politics of different aspects of, of food production and livestock agriculture as well, animal agriculture. It can get out of hand really quickly. And who suffers the most? Consumers. You would think there'd be a little more understanding these days just with the cost of eggs. Now that's different reason perhaps, 
but there's just so much that goes on that I hope that we can have a discussion with stakeholders that can elevate the back and forth. Now, I to the Undersecretary's point earlier about, you know, kind of the negative connotations of trade, you know, it's interesting because I, I agree that over the years there have been developing negative connotations and discussions about trade. And then circa 2017, here comes some tariffs and the coffee shops across America <laughs> kind of blew up about tariffs. What do tariffs do? What do they not do? What could be the results? What's the leverage, you know, attempt here? And so there was all of this concern about tariffs. I get it. I'm not a big fan of tariffs either. But I do believe that it elevated the discussions in coffee shops across America about trade. And that helped us get some things done in uh, the previous administration as it relates to trade. And so I, I hope that we can push forward by leaning in on these trade issues, whether it's uh, with Kenya, whether it is holding uh, UK's feet to the fire on, you know, how badly do they want a trade agreement? And other opportunities, I, I truly believe, we hear a lot about labor and environment and how it, these other countries unfairly engage with labor and environment. Well, imagine if we had no trade agreements whatsoever, what would be the state of labor and environment around the world in other countries? So trade agreements actually give us more leverage to set the standard, I think a positive standard with how employees should be treated and what is good for the environment. And that becomes a win-win when we can level the playing field and being able to sell more of our products around the world uh, when we know we're really good at uh, feeding the world, we don't want to see unnecessary, unreasonable regulations uh, stand in the way. So we'll bring it home with some final thoughts. We'll start down on that side of the table. Deputy Undersecretary, with you, anything that we didn't cover that you would want to bring up? Nope. Just to say, appreciate the chance to talk about this. It's a big priority for us. We know it's real important to our stakeholders and just important for the relationship with Mexico, uh, the technology. A lot's at stake here. We're, we're very much doubling down on it. This is going to be a big year. Farmers are getting ready to plant in the spring for a crop that they'll harvest in the fall and sell into the winter. And if Mexico doesn't change this regulation they won't be able to sell these in January in Mexico. So now really is the time for Mexico to make the change. We're definitely using all the tools we can to try and uh, convince them of that and just appreciate the help we've gotten from stakeholders from the Hill and, and from everybody. Um, well, I would, uh, as a corn farmer, just want to voice uh, appreciation for administration and the USDA and, and USTR for getting engaged on this. It, it is a huge issue, uh, like you said, under secretary and, the science and the truth are definitely on our side. And, uh, you know, we just would really encourage administration to really hold the line on this issue. And, uh, you know, Secretary Vilsack, I think, recently said, you know, that, that there is no compromise that is acceptable from our standpoint. And I think that's a really, really strong statement that we're 100 percent behind, you know, the corn chips that are in. My pantry are the same corn chips that everyone else in the nation buys. I feed GMOs to my family, as do all farmers across the nation. It's safe. It's reliable. You know, you talk about food security, environmental, social benefits. There's just a win-win-win there. And it has great synergism between science and the social benefits as well as the environmental. So, yeah, a huge issue that we're going to continue to work on and strive for that positive outcome of keeping that trade relationship with Mexico. 
I've got a few comments here just uh, as we've been going on. You know, the American corn farmer has been uh, working hard the last seven to eight years on sustainability, and we're gaining more every year. The farmer's doing a better job of taking care of the land every year. 35 years ago when I started farming, 40 years ago when I started farming, complete different practices back then compared to what we do now. At one time back, we had to say if it wasn't black and where I lived, you can't plant it. Well, now we can use vertical tillage just because of the technology and all that, and we're proving it can work. So the Mexican government would like to say, corn farmers from the U.S., this is what we want you to do. We don't want another country telling us that we have to farm that way. We know what we're growing. We know we're growing a safe product. Like Andy said, it's been 20 plus years since we've been growing this. The thing that also comes up, and Representative Smith mentioned it, it's going to cost us more to grow that non-GMO corn, so that means the price goes up. We've got $7 corn right now. We might need $11 corn in order to break even. So, But then we export it to them. It's going to be that much more expensive for that Mexican consumer to buy the product compared to what they're buying it for right now. So we can see more of the pluses going our way, and that's why GMO has been proving itself to be a, a very, very uh, a good product for us. The one last thing I would like to tune to is what Andy just mentioned. You know, back in December, uh, our CEO got a call from uh, Secretary Vilsack saying, I just had a meeting with uh, the Mexican uh, entourage with my group, and he says, we're staying strong. He says, uh, let's not give in. Well, then last week when uh, USTR and USDA were down there when they came back home and said, no, no deals. We're staying to our rules. Let the trade agreement work. That's what we're here for. And with the administration saying the same thing, that is what our NCGA it wants to hear, that they're behind us and that they believe in the, the American corn farmer, what we're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you all for a, a great conversation. Mexico's a great neighbor. They're also a, a great customer of, of our corn. I heard it from Congressman Smith and, and Andy, the win-win term. This proposed ban uh, is a lose-lose for our two countries. And, and we're grateful for the bipartisan support that we have uh, from the administration and Congressman Smith, all you're doing on Capitol Hill. And uh, because of that, we're optimistic that we're going to have a positive resolution soon. Uh, we need that sooner rather than later, given that the clock uh, is ticking. January 31st, 2024, right? That is the date that we're working for. And so with that, I want to say thank you on behalf of National Corn Growers Association. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for our, our panelists and, and our leadership here in Washington. Thanks. Once again, a big thank you to all our guests in this Capitol Hill Congressional Briefing. Congressman Adrian Smith from Nebraska, Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Jason Hoffmeister, NCGA President Tom Hag, Nebraska grower Andy Jobman, and the discussion was led by NCGA Vice President of Communications Neil Kasky. I'm Dusty Weiss, and we hope you'll join us again next month for another episode of the Cobcast Inside the Grind with the National Corn Growers Association. To keep up with this and other issues, you can follow at National Corn on Twitter for more news and updates from the NCGA. Visit ncga.com to sign up for the association's email newsletter. And make sure you're following this show in your favorite podcast app. The Cobcast is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association with editing by Larry Kilgore III, and it's produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.